Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Steve Ray and his talk, Abraham, Our Father in Faith and Works, recorded at the Gift of Faith Conference in June 2008. And now, Steve Ray. Um, It's very nice to be here, and thank you for having Catholic Radio in this area of Ohio, because I'm convinced that Catholic Radio is one of the most important things going on in the Catholic Church today, because it's getting the word out. Evangelicals understood the importance of radio long before we did, and when I was growing up in a Baptist family, my mom had Protestant radio going on all the time, and they have stations galore, and they understood the power of the media, and it's... I'm very glad and happy to see Catholics jumping on the bandwagon and lay people getting involved in doing these things. So thank you very much, and that's one of the reasons I was happy to come down here, because I'm a great supporter of, of uh, Catholic radio. I want to start with a joke first, because that, you know there's so many bad jokes out there. We need good jokes, and this one applies to what we're going to talk about, too, because the topic of my talk tonight is I'm going to um, talk about Abraham, father of faith and works. I used to just say he was a father of faith, and you Catholics used to think he was the father of works, but I realize now that he's the father of faith and works. And um, Ignatius Press just gave my wife and I the green light to go ahead and do the next DVD, which is going to be entitled Abraham, Father of Faith and Works, and we have to go to Iraq and to Turkey and to Israel to film it. But the, let's start with a joke first. A man dies and he goes to heaven and he's standing at the gates of heaven and Peter's there, the proverbial keeper of the keys at the gate and he uh, says, okay, welcome, uh, mystery. He says, uh, here's how it works. He says, you tell me how many good things you've done in life, good works you've done, and I'll tell you how many points there are. If you get 100 points, you get into heaven. So the guy's very confident he's lived a great life, you know, and he says, well, he says, first of all, I've been married to the same woman my whole life. I've never had a lustful thought. In the last 50 years, I've been very good to my wife and taking care of my family. And Peter goes to the heavenly computer and types it all in and comes back and says, that's very good. He says, that's worth three points. Peter's thinking three, I need a hundred. I mean, this guy's thinking three, I need a hundred. He says, oh my goodness. He says, I gave more than 10% of my money my whole life. He said, every time when that collection plate came by, when I threw my money in, they almost dropped the basket. He said, we put so much money in, we gave money every Sunday. And Peter went to the heavenly computer, typed it all in, came back, said, very good, that's worth two points. Now the guy starts sweating. He goes, oh my God. He said, what am I going to do? He comes back and, and he says to Peter, he says, I, I, I'm, I said, I, I started a soup kitchen too. I might as well tell you that. And we fed the poor on Saturdays. We brought in a hundred a week and fed them. And Peter goes, no, that's worth one point. And the guy, he, just, he drops on the ground on his knees. He said, oh my God, the only way I'll get in, it's only by the grace of God I'll get into heaven. And Peter says, bingo, hundred points, come on in. <laughs> See, now that's a good joke for Catholics to tell your friends, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, and so on, because this is our view. We don't get to heaven by working. We never thought we got to heaven by working. And when I was an evangelical Protestant, the biggest argument for me against the Catholic Church, people said, what made you fall in love with the Catholic Church? You're so excited about what what did you see about the church that made you fall in love with it? I said, absolutely nothing at first, especially the biggest argument against the Catholic Church were the Catholics. I'd ask them, are you saved? And they'd say, well, 
we, we, we're trying to be good. We haven't killed anyone. And I said, you don't have a clue. And they don't. Any Catholic that answers that way doesn't have a clue. You don't get to heaven by not killing anyone and by doing good works and trying to, be, to do good things. That's not the way you get to heaven. You get to heaven by the grace of God, by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, through the, b- b- the free gift of baptism in which he bestows his grace and sanctifying grace into our souls. This is how you get to heaven. And whenever I asked a Catholic, they'd answer me that way. I was convinced the Catholics didn't have a clue. So anyway, that, that joke is good. You can use it. Now, why I'm dressed like this, I'll tell you real quick so I don't have to tomorrow, is um, after we became Catholics 14 years ago, this Pentecost, by the way, we're 14 years old, we're just young teenage Catholics, we're still learning our way into this church, and when we became Catholics, I told people my conversion story a couple times, and then I wrote my dad a book called Crossing the Tiber, which is out there. I wrote him a letter. It was just started in the, most of the things I start are at 2 in the morning, and it started, Dear Dad, you're the best mom and dad in the whole world, and I owe you an explanation, because they were furious at me for be- even thinking about being Catholic. And then the book came out, and then we, I got this idea. Oh, we took our kids to the Holy Land in 1995. They were teenagers, 16 and 13. Cindy and Jesse. The other two were little and we left them home and took them the next time. And when we got there, they enjoyed it. We came home and they changed. They got really bizarre, these two teenagers. They were going to confession on their own once a month. They were going to mass several times a week on their own. My daughter just got her driver's license off. Where are you going? We're going to mass. What happened to you guys? Dad, you took us to the Holy Land. And we always knew this was true. But when we touched the place where the blood dripped off of Jesus onto the ground at Calvary, and when we went into the tomb and we touched that, now we know it's true with a capital T. And it changed us, Dad. So I'm thinking, wow, would I love to take all Catholics there, you know, which we're doing now, by the way. So if you want to get a brochure in the back, we take about six groups a year over to the Holy Land now. We just love it. And I woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning in the year of Jubilee, the year 2000. I woke up at 2 in the morning. I don't know what it was. I say I don't really know if it was an angel, a revelation, a dream, indigestion. I don't know what woke me up. I woke right up and I sat up in bed. I grabbed my wife and I shook her awake and I said, Janet, Janet, quick, wake up, quick up. And she goes, what, what? And I said, Janet, we have to do a 10-part video series on the history of salvation from a Catholic perspective. Just like that. And she was scared. She thought the house was on fire, that I was having a heart attack or something. And she just laying in bed like this, you know. And she said, you woke me up to tell me that? She said, you're crazy. Well, we'd been married 25 years at the time, so she already knew I was crazy. But she says, we can't even take good pictures. How does God expect us to make movies? And she rolled over and went back to sleep. And so I got up that. And she says now that if, if she had gotten this dream or whatever it was, she would have just said... That's crazy and rolled over and gone back to sleep. But I got up that night and I typed out the whole outline for the 10-part series and called Father Fessio, and six weeks later we were filming in Israel. So I won't tell you that long story, but the first day we were out there in Bethsaida filming the beginning of Peter's life. See, I have this special hairdo, and uh, I was out in the sun all day, and when I got done I was as red as like beet red. Anybody that has my hairdo, there aren't too many of you here, oh, lucky enough to have this, but, (laughs) you know, they said that God made a few perfect heads and the rest he covered with hair. And so, (laughs) so my head was, if you watch the Peter video, you'll see when I'm starting, my head is like it is now, but at the end of that first day, I was bright red. So my wife got me this hat and I've been wearing it ever since. And, And I actually started my own business in 1975 with one of the 
reasons for starting my business is that I would never have to wear a suit and tie, and now I get to live up to that. So <laughs> I just finished writing a 300-page Bible study guide for Catholic Scripture studies. I don't have any of you use Catholic Scripture studies. If you haven't, you should get it started in your diocese. It's a marvelous Catholic Scripture studies. That they say the box comes. All you do is add water. It's that easy to use. It's all written. It has a half an hour lecture on a DVD, introduction to that lesson in that chapter. We have Matthew, Acts, Genesis, Revelation, and others, and it's very orthodox. I've written two of them now, Acts and Genesis. I just finished it two days ago, by the way, writing for six weeks. That's all I did was wrote that study on Genesis. So when you asked me to speak on Abraham, it was like, no problem. I know this guy. He's my friend. I've been with him the last six weeks writing about him and thinking about him and studying about him. So that was great. But if you don't use Catholic Scripture Study, go to www.catholicscripturestudy.com. It's easy to start in parishes. There are over 10,000 members now in five years, I think it is. They've now got 10,000 members in 40 countries. And Catholics are studying the Bible and It's a wonderful program. So we'll talk about Abraham, father of faith and works. And I was at the airport today, and I'm used to being around Jewish people because I'm in Israel six or eight times a year, and I love the Jewish people. And I was at the airport today, and I saw the the Hasidic Jew come in with his black hat and his beard and his kids with little yarmulkes on their heads and the, the mother with the, you know, the, skull, the stocking cap on her head and dressed very conservatively. And I watched them walk in and I just thinking to myself of what I was going to do tonight, thinking they got started 4,000 years ago. They're here today sitting there dressed unusual as a witness to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because of what happened with an old pagan. Abraham was a pagan. He wasn't a Jew even. He wasn't a Christian. He was a pagan with worshiping the gods. And because of Abraham and his belief in God, I was looking at those people 4,000 years later as witnesses to that God who is faithful to his promises. I'm, I'm convinced that the Jewish people today, that they exist, are one of the most important proofs of the existence of God that you're going to find. We can do all the thing about uh, archaeology and philosophy and everything else, but to me, if you want to know that God exists, you watch the Jewish person walk by. Mark, you said you're part Jewish. That he, that your, was it your grandfather was 100% Jewish and became Catholic? But the very fact that he was Jewish and knew it meant that for 2,000 years his family kept that tradition, faithfully keeping that religion, that tradition, the Torah, serving the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because if one generation leaves that, then they lose contact with who they are. And if you think about it, in 586, I think it was, B.C., they were taken away into exile into Babylon. The northern ten tribes were already gone. All that were there was the tribe of Judah, some Levites and some Benjamites. And then Babylonians came and took them away. Some of them came back just before the time of Christ and in 400 B.C. And then after 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed and wiped out, and two years later, Masada, the last 900 to 1,000 Jews, were removed from the land. For 2,000 years, these people never had a homeland. They were vagabonds, not vagabonds, because that is a negative kind of, refugees, let's say, around the world. They didn't have a homeland. They didn't have any place to stay. How many people, small group of people, could survive 2,000 years without a homeland? 
Do you know how many Jews there are today in the world? Only 13 million. Six million of them live in Israel. The other seven million live around the world. What group of people have that kind of disproportionate influence on the world that the Jews do? You go to any Barnes and Nobles or Border bookstores and you're going to find a huge Jewish section. It will rival the Catholic section. And there's only 13 million of them in the whole world. You won't find any section there to the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Amorites. But the Jews have a section. Then if you go to the art and music and philosophy, half of those were written by the Jews. Why? I'm convinced after looking at this phenomenon of them not even having a homeland, of being kicked from one country to another, that God blessed them because of Abraham. God gave Abraham a blessing and he said, I will bless you and your descendants forever. It's an everlasting covenant. And God didn't make this covenant with Abraham contingent. He said, because you have loved me, because you have had faith in me, and because you obeyed me, I will make a covenant. And a covenant is not a contract. Scott Hahn makes a distinction, I think, very well between a contract is like what a man does with a prostitute. A covenant is what a man does with a wife. He makes a commitment for life. God made a commitment, a blood pact in a way, a family commitment with Abraham for life. And even though 80% of the Jews in Israel right now are atheistic, secular Jews, God has still kept his promise to Abraham. And I have a whole talk I do on Israel, in the, but, but I don't have time to. But I'm convinced that just looking at the Jewish people and their existence, and do you know how many of them are converting to the Catholic faith right now? We'll return to Living Bread Radio Presents after a short break. This is Monsignor John Kozar, National Director of the Pontifical Mission Societies in the United States. On the island of Sumatra in Indonesia, a local bishop visited a small village where he found more than 200 waiting to be baptized. He was even more amazed when he discovered the reason for such a large group. The community leader's two daughters had invited children to join them for Sunday prayers. Those children would return home and invite their families to come as well to learn more about Jesus. The young people in our lives filled with faith and hope are missionaries as well, above all as they pray for their brothers and sisters around the world. It's a lesson from the missions. Brought to you by the Pontifical Mission Societies. To learn more about becoming a missionary right where you are, visit our website at onefamilyandmission.org. Remember, if you're baptized, you're a missionary. Through prayer and sacrifice, in word and witness, we're all part of this one family and mission. And now the conclusion of today's production of Living Bread Radio Presents. So this whole thing all started with Abraham. And so I want to go back and say, who was Abraham? We hear about him being the father of faith. We hear about him in all these stories of trying to kill his son. You know, I mean, what nonsense is this? A dad takes his son up on an altar and tries to cut him up with a knife. You know, what, I mean, who is this guy? Who is Abraham? This guy that followed God. And I want to start back all the way because if we do this right, we'll start with Adam way back at the beginning. And by the time I give my third talk tomorrow, we'll end up with the church today. It's going to be a fast zoop through this, like fast forwarding a video. Just going to be pretty quick, but we'll try and do it. 
God created the heavens and the earth. And doing the Genesis study, I mean, this is all so fresh in my mind. And out of that, he creates Adam and Eve in his image. And they fall and they have sin. And then they have sons and daughters and they scatter over the earth. And then the world gets so wicked because of the sin that encroaches into their very being and into the universe that God created. Even the earth was cursed. Then they went so bad that in Genesis 6, God got so disgusted, he said, I'm going to wipe everybody out, but I found one man who walked with God, Noah, who was a righteous man, and he said he went to Noah and said, build a big boat. So Noah builds the big boat, and he gets everybody on. Everybody thought he was crazy, and Noah and his family of eight were saved. We'll talk more about them tomorrow in baptism. And then after the flood is over, there's family. They spread out. Ham, Shem, and Japheth, his three sons, spread out over the world. And then we have a man named Eber comes along. Nobody knows who Eber is. But Eber is where we get the word Hebrew. When we say Abraham was a Hebrew, it's because he was from the family of Eber, Hebrew. That's where it comes from. Eber has sons. They never list the daughters. Women weren't important back then. It was only the men who were important. So it was a patriarchal society. That's the way it was. And then Abram comes along. A man, actually a man named Terah comes along, and Abraham's mother is unknown. But then they have, he has two brothers, three brothers. There's three brothers, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now when I'm talking about Abraham, I'm going to refer to him as Abram, not Abraham, until we get to Genesis chapter 17. Because he doesn't get the name Abraham until chapter 17. He was only called Abram, which means, anybody know? Father, right. Exalted, yeah, I think it is even exalted father. I think it's just father at first. Abram means father, which is kind of cruel, by the way, because he doesn't have any kids. And he doesn't for a long time. It's kind of like if your name is, Mus- if your name is Muscles, and you're a skinny little guy? It's kind of a... It's, 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 what's your name? Muscles. Oh, yeah? Let me see them. Uh, well, I feel them. I can't even find them. I mean, it's so good. So, and, and Abram lived in Ur of the Chaldees. He didn't live in Israel. God didn't call him out of Israel. Sometimes the Jews think that, you know, everything happens in Israel. But that isn't the case. Abraham was called when he was in a pagan land, and it was a city called Ur. And my wife and I have to go there in a few months. It's, do you know where Ur is? Because we're going to start filming the story of Abraham. Ur is just south of Baghdad. It's right between Baghdad and the Persian Gulf. This is where Abraham started. There are still, there are still monuments and things there that are from Abraham's time. I forgot to bring a couple things with me. But I have a tablet of clay with the writing in it from the time of Abraham with the, with the writing that I bought in Israel. And so the, he lived in Ur of the Chaldees. It was a very wealthy area. They had lots of gold. You can go to museums. I've been to museums in, in uh, Britain and in Egypt and other places that have a, and also in, in Jerusalem that have a, a um, Chaldean or Mesopotamia section where they have all of these artifacts and gold and pottery and things that come from Abraham's time. And he lived there, and it was a wealthy place. And he obviously was not a poor man because they had lots of flocks and herds and people working for them, enough so that when he finally gets to the promised land, he had enough men with him that he could go out and fight a couple kings and defeat them in battle. This is how wealthy Abraham was, but he didn't have a son. He was named father, but he didn't have a son or a daughter or anything else. At the time, Abraham was a pagan. He wasn't a Christian, Surprise, surprise. He wasn't a Jew. 
Do you know why he wasn't a Jew? Because Jews, the word Jew, comes from the word Judah. Judah was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Nephtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. I've been working on that. Just so I could show off for you tonight. And Judah was just the fourth born. When the northern ten tribes disappeared with, into the Assyria during the battle about 700 B.C., all the northern ten tribes were gone, and it was really all that was left was Judah, which was in the land around Jerusalem. So anybody today who is a Jew is not a descendant of Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, or any of the others. They are a descendant of the one tribe of Israel, Judah. And that's where the word Jew comes from. So Abraham wasn't a Jew because the Jews didn't come along. They were his great-grandchildren was Judah. And all of them that followed were his great-great-grandchildren and so on. So he wasn't a Jew. He preceded the Jews. He was a pagan, an uncircumcised pagan who worshipped the pagan gods of the Chaldeans and of the Mesopotamians and those who, all those people on the other side there, all those pagan deities they worshipped. And even Abraham and his family, even uh, uh, Rachel, Rebecca was, even had pagan gods. And if you remember the story, she hid them under her saddle blankets, the family gods. They didn't have one god back then. This is why Abraham was so unusual. And the gods then were tied to the land. There were multitudes of gods. Everywhere there were gods. You had gods for this and gods for this and gods for your crops and gods for fertility and everything else. And they had these little statues and gods all over, idols. And Abraham was a pagan, and he wasn't saved because he was circumcised. He was circumcised because he was saved. We're going to get into that. He wasn't a circumcised believer at the time. He was an uncircumcised pagan out living in Ur of the Chaldees like everybody else. So why is he the father of faith? Because God called him, and he obeyed God. And I want to start with saying that when was Abraham saved? Why did God pick Abraham, first of all? And when was Abraham saved? And the reason I want to bring this up is because when I became a Catholic, one of the first things that happened to me is I got a phone call from a guy named Jerry, who was a Baptist, and he called me and said, Steve, I'm really curious as to why you became a Catholic. I used to be a Catholic, and now I'm a Baptist, and I just can't believe that you would go the other way. Can I come talk to you? I said, sure, Jerry, come on over, and I'll, make, I'll get the grill going. I thought he was being honest with me. So I said, come on over, we'll talk. So Jerry came over and he sat and talked and I grilled salmon on the grill and I made him a nice dinner and we talked. He said, why did you do this? So I started very innocently to tell him my story. And then he starts asking me questions and I could see that, oh, wait a minute. He's not really, Jerry, are you really here to find out why I converted or, well, I didn't know. And I, I was answering pretty well. I was only Catholic less than a year. And I was answering him pretty well where he was getting frustrated. So he pulls a little card out of his pocket. I don't have one to show you, but he pulls a little card out. And he starts going down. I said, what's that? I knew what it was because I used to do that kind of stuff. That was called a cheat sheet. When I would go talk to a Catholic, I'd have all the verses and the arguments all down, and I'd pull out my little cheat sheet. He wasn't there to be honest with me. He was there to try to trip me up. Aha, I said, Jerry. You came here, and for the first hour, I thought you were an honest man. You lied to me, Jerry. You lied to me about who you are and why you came. I said, you'd see me with Catholic printed on my forehead, and all of a sudden, it's just come out like a tattoo on yours, fundamentalist. I said, the whole discussion's going to be a whole different one now. I said, hold on to your seat. And we spent four hours that night 
I wrote him a series of 15 letters. His wife started sending them back. I had to start sending them to his work. (laughs) They're on my website. So we talked for a long time that night, and he told me that Abraham was saved once and for all. Typical evangelical party line. Once and for all, you're saved. Once saved, always saved. Eternal security. You accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You're going to heaven. Nothing you can do to take you out of God's hands. Once you're put in the hands of God, nobody can take you out. You're saved forever. Well, that's the way I was raised. It's a very dangerous way to raise a teenager with no accountability that you don't have to worry about what you do. You're going to heaven anyway. All your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. It's a lie, and it's going to send more people to hell than anything else I'm convinced of. But it's not true. And he wanted to present this to me, that Abraham was saved once and for all. And I said, where, Jerry? Where was he saved once and for all? He turns to Genesis 15, 6, and we're going to get there in a little while. And it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's the word used for accounting. It means that God looked at Abraham, and Abraham believed God, and because of his belief, God put righteousness into his bank account. It's an accounting term. He accredited it to his account as righteousness. From that point on, Abraham saved. Never before. Now he's saved at this moment in time, and he can never lose it now. I said, Jerry, we're going to have some fun now. We're going to do Bible study. And that's what I want to take you through a little bit of that now as I do this. At 75 years old, 75, actually before that, his family leaves Ur and they come up. I'm going to have to do this backwards because if I do it my way, it's going to be reversed for you. Ur of the Chaldees is down here in Iraq. This is all desert. Over here is Canaan, the promised land. But it's all desert in between. There's the Euphrates River goes up into modern-day Turkey and then it comes down into Canaan, which is Israel now. So Abraham and his family went about 800 miles up the Fertile Crescent, it's called. It was the, the way of all the uh, caravans and the merchants and everything. They'd go along the Euphrates River to avoid the desert, and there they settled in Haran. And it's right now just above Iraq in the country of Turkey. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on compact disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.